Hello, this is Eric Bryant, pastor at Gateway Church in South Austin. If you want more resources, including the notes from this message, go to ericbryant.org. Or to find out more about our community, go to gatewaychurch.com south. Well, this song we sang, Have It All, it's a compelling idea, but it's really hard to pull off. The idea of allowing God to have all of who we are, all of our hopes and dreams and regrets. And yet, when we allow God to have it all, we actually end up with more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so in this Christmas season, I want us to have a bigger view of of Christmas. Because oftentimes the message of Christmas is so routine that Christmas can be minimalized. It can be trivialized. I mean, it becomes all about the sleigh rides and the Christmas songs and the nutmeg and the eggnog and the fruitcake. There's a lot of favorite foods I have around this time of year. But there are some really odd traditions out there. I'm curious, how many of you always have a Yule log burning in the fireplace? Anyone? 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 No. Anyone watch the Yule log burning in the fireplace? All right, a few more of us. A few more of us. Yeah, that Yule log on TV doesn't smell as good, but it's safer, right? I don't know if you know the story, but there's a TV station in New York City that for 24 hours on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, since 1966, they've been showing a Yule log burning in the fireplace. And it's now kind of spread all over. In fact, the original film was made at the Gracie Mansion and unfortunately sparked a fire. Yes. So they didn't, they didn't feel safe enough to do the reshoots there at the Gracie Mansion. So the new version was filmed in California where they don't have any problems with fire. So that works out real well. How about this one? This is another really odd one I had never heard of. But, but in the first service, there were several people that, that actually know about the Christmas pickle. Oh, right, lots of Christmas pickles. All right, do you know the Christmas pickle? There's a Christmas pickle. So there's one ornament on the tree in the shape of a pickle. And the first child to find that ornament gets to be the one that opens his or her gift first. And so the Christmas pickles is kind of odd. And so they try to figure out, what, where did the Christmas pickle, where was this invented? And the rumor was Germany. But then they talked to people from Germany. And they're like, what are you talking about, Christmas pickle? So apparently, the origins of the Christmas pickle is a department store called Woolworths. In the 1880s, for some reason, made a bunch of Christmas ornament pickles and told everybody it was an idea that came from Germany. So if it's from Germany, like the Christmas tree is, it must be a good idea, right? A Christmas pickle. So the Christmas pickle and the Yule log, right? They, they, they're just... Traditions, things we've added to the story of Christmas, but even celebrating baby Jesus in a manger can trivialize the magnitude of God's plan for Christmas. I mean, wasn't it Ricky Bobby that prayed to the eight and a half pound, six ounce baby Jesus? (laughs) Yeah. And yet even this idea of how Jesus came to bring salvation in the context of the Christmas story, if we're not careful, it can come across as trivial. We trivialize something was actually revolutionary, something that is truly 
dramatically change the world for all eternity. Salvation announced at Christmas was about God changing our lives right now and into eternity. The angels announcing the birth of Jesus declared in Luke 2, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now I know my parents were excited when I was born. I was the firstborn, but there were no angels announcing my arrival. This was a historic moment. These spiritual beings crashed into the scene to notify anyone who would listen. This baby is not like no other baby. See, Jesus was bringing something great for all people everywhere, great joy to all nations. But if we're not careful, we keep Christmas nicely insulated from real life, wrapped up and contained in a story about a baby in a manger. I want us to think in this season about Christmas the way it truly should be, bigger, more about what Jesus did, more about what he's still doing, in fact, can do through us if we're willing. See, Jesus was born into poverty and scandal, brought into the world amidst the stench of animals and their manure. He died as a common criminal on a Roman cross, and he taught about the love of God and did miracles that some believed and others were skeptical. And in spite of all that he did, dying on the cross and then rising from the dead, even appearing to many of his followers, do you know that 40 days after Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead, there were only 120 people who claimed to be following Jesus? There are twice that many in this room right now. And if you looked at Jesus in that moment, you would think he's just another one of these guys whose impact will diminish as time goes on. You see, when someone dies, usually their impact dissipates over time. Someone wrote 15 years ago, our world had Bob Hope, Johnny Cash, and Steve Jobs. Now we have no jobs, no cash, and no hope. <laughs> but actually what happened with Jesus is his impact actually grew after his death. That there were people after he ascended on Pentecost who actually were transformed because the Spirit of God came to live within those 120. And soon there were thousands hearing the message of a risen king, the Messiah, still alive. 500 years later, his impact was even bigger than that. 1,000 years later, even now 2,000 years later, the impact of Jesus has grown exponentially. No one else can that be said of. Even in our little church, in our three campuses in Austin, we have 65 different nations represented. See, the message of Jesus transformed the entire world. As former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice notes, the very idea that all people are created equal was not the fabric of the ancient world. It came from Jesus. It was one of the key followers of Jesus who described what the early church looked like when he said this to the Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
the man-made distinctions and boundaries between people and community and groups became one family in Jesus, made up of those willingly following him. Condoleezza Rice writes, Christians would minister to the sick and disabled and build hospitals, pursue universal education, spread teaching through universities, and lift up the poor in faraway places, for they would inherit the earth. Things have changed dramatically since Jesus walked among us. In his book, When Children Became People, historian A.O.M. Baki writes about how children were not considered people in the ancient world. Infanticide happened all the time. If a child was born with a deformity or the unpreferred gender, it was common just to leave that baby to die. But Jesus comes along and actually values children, in fact, lifts them up as an example for us to follow in their childlike faith. And things changed. In fact, it was followers of Jesus that began to adopt these babies that were left for dead, raising them up, loving them. It was women who were seen like property in the ancient world. But Jesus actually invited women to follow him, unheard of by any other rabbi. In fact, some of his followers were people like Mary and Martha, Joanna, Mary Magdalene, and others. Jesus' followers were a diverse mix of slave and free, poor and wealthy, women and men, Jew and Gentiles, and it was the followers of Jesus who started the abolitionist movement to end slavery across the British Empire. Jesus' great commission to help all nations learn God's way led to Christians, followers of Jesus, bringing literacy to everywhere they would go, some risking life and limb in order to teach people how to read in their own language the story of Jesus. In fact, most famous Places of education were started by followers of Jesus who believed that it was up to us to teach the next generation God's ways. Places like Oxford and Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, virtually the entire Western system of education and scholarship were started by followers of Jesus. More hospitals have been built around the planet in the name of Jesus than any other organization on earth. Even our little church helped build a hospital in India to take care of the poor who could not afford it. Motivated because Jesus healed the sick. More financial giving and loving service to the poor and downtrodden has come from his followers than any other group in history because Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Now Malcolm Mutteridge is an atheistic humanist who visited Mother Teresa and her leper colony, where she cared for people with leprosy. And after seeing all of these people who traveled from across the world, motivated by their faith to care for people with leprosy, he said these words, you know, humanists don't run leprosiums, places for people with leprosy. There's so much more. I mean, even just our little church in the last 20 years, we've estimated that we have served Collectively, 400,000 hours in our community. Collectively, over the last 20 years, we've given $7.5 million together to our global partners and church plants, some of whom are working with the most impoverished. 
And we're just one little church among millions across the planet doing good and representing what Jesus did for us, but continuing that mission even now. Jesus changed the world, and he chose to change the world through his church, through those who believe in him, who follow him. We get insight into how God does this, how he brings transformation when the angels announced his birth. Luke 1. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Yeshua. Jesus, the name itself means salvation. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. See, Jesus was and is a king, the ruler over a new kingdom, one that will last beyond every other kingdom when they all perish. He established this kingdom not by power or force or greed like the kingdoms of our world are built, but actually founded it by the hearts of those who are willing, willing to trust, willing to love. His kingdom built on love. Now, love cannot be forced. Love must be established through willingness. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Because his kingdom comes through us in proportion to how willing we are to put God's kingdom building before our own kingdom building. And if you look at the story of Christmas, you'll see that it's actually a story of two kings. One who had immense power and greatness in the eyes of the world and the other an infant, seemingly powerless. Now deep down, we all want to be great. We, we long to have significance and meaning. I mean, none of us wants a funeral where they just stand up and say, you know, don't have much to say. He was fine. You know, he was all right. I'm just here for the food after. No one wants that. Like, we all want to make some sort of significant difference in the lives of other people. But see, here's the problem when we... we pursue greatness according to the ways of the world, we actually are more destructive. See, the greatest one shows a different path to greatness. Greatness, It's a path that actually lasts. I wanna read from the story of the birth of Jesus, and I want you to notice some elements that are not included in the traditional telling of the story. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Christ, Messiah, supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Now, the Christmas cards don't depict the reality of the situation surrounding Jesus' birth. First, Matthew tells us there's an unnumbered group of Eastern astrologies, probably Zoroastrians from Iran, that had seen a star. How many of you have nativities with three magi? Right? So we don't know. There could have been far more than that. But that's just a part of the story. 
They didn't actually go first to the baby Jesus. They went first to the king. More than likely, they're thinking, oh, a king would be born of a king. So we must go to Herod the Great to just find this new king of the Jews. They did not appear on the night of his birth. So I hate to disappoint you if you've got a nativity and you've got little baby Jesus with these three wise men. That's not exactly how it happened. In fact, some estimate it could have been two weeks after his birth. It could have been two years after his birth that they showed up to see Jesus. So if you want a more accurate depiction, this Christmas, just put out the baby Jesus. And two years from now, bring out the Magi. That's more accurate, right? These kings of the Orient went straight to King Herod. They're part of the story, but not at the same time that we think. And another part that doesn't show up, it says that Jerusalem was disturbed by the birth of Jesus. Why was Jerusalem disturbed? Well, it's because their king, Herod the Great, was disturbed. And when the king's unhappy, everybody's nervous, especially this particular king. First of all, we know he was a great king because he named himself Herod the Great. Herod was obsessed with moving up. And the only thing he was obsessed more than moving up was not moving down. And he was disturbed, and it disturbed everyone. Now, history tells us that Herod the Great would do anything to obtain more power and wealth and do anything to hold on to it. He would do whatever it took to be great. So he was known for making arrests, for beating, extorting, blackmailing, kidnapping, torturing, and executing anyone that posed a threat. He devised an elaborate network of spies so that no word was breathed in the kingdom without his knowledge. He built an elaborate network of palaces and fortresses on the back of thousands of slaves. One of those palaces was a majestic palace called the Herodium. Here's a picture of it. That's not the original. But he arranged all his relationships to flow more power and wealth his way. He was the king of kissing up. He bankrolled the remodeling of the Jewish temple in downtown Jerusalem to win favor. So the temple in Jerusalem, the one that Jesus walked around, the second temple was built by King Herod the Great. He also built a state-of-the-art harbor city and named it after his boss, Caesar Augustus, called Caesarea. In the ancient world, this was remarkable. His buildings were known world over. Herod the Great. But more than several of Herod's 10 marriages were actually politically motivated. And there was no price too great to keep moving up and avoid moving down. He ordered the execution of any possible candidate, including two of his wives and three of his sons. So when Herod hears from these Eastern astrologers, the Magi from Iran, that there was a new king in town, he was disturbed and fear swept through Jerusalem. Discovering where this Messiah was to be born, Bethlehem, he ordered the execution of every male child in Bethlehem that was two years and younger. Can you imagine the slaughter of these innocent babies. The story tells us that Joseph 
had a dream that warned him to get out of Bethlehem, and so they escaped to Egypt. Jesus protected these other families losing their little ones. Herod was obsessed with being great, even to the point of killing innocent children. By the way, the death of innocent children is often a line that once crossed leads to the destruction of a culture. Throughout the scriptures, we see kingdoms fall once they move to the point of sacrificing babies for the sake of power or in worship to their angry God. We see this in the story of Moses and the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Israelites, and now in this story, the rulers known as the Herodians. Now let's pause for a second, because we're not Herod. So we're thinking, okay, I got it. I won't kill babies. I won't destroy my wives and sons. Okay, yes, that's easy. Easy application. But actually, he's a textbook version of the insatiability of moving up. That the more power you have, the more power you want. And that if you go by the the ways of greatness that the world advocates, then all of a sudden you find you're destroying those around you. You're destroying yourself. It's a warning that greatness should only be pursued in the context of the way God designed us to pursue it. You see, the scriptures are not against ambition. The scriptures are not against pursuing greatness. Jesus didn't say, don't seek greatness. He said this, Mark 10. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. See, the world's way to greatness is a trap. The way of Jesus actually brings life. The path up to greatness leads to anxiety and worry and envy and jealousy, and in the end, nothing that lasts. Yet into a world that celebrates up, Jesus descends. And it's in this moment that these two king's stories collide. Herod the Great, with incredible power, facing off against an infant named Yeshua. And in the end, the story of the infant prevails. See, both kings possessed immense power, but how they used it revealed their hearts. One moving up, grasping for greatness, one moving down, willingly relinquishing his splendor. One motivated by self-interest, the other motivated by love. One manipulating, deceiving, terrorizing, the other healing, teaching, rescuing. One a tyrant, one a servant. One wanted to be God, the other was God. See, until we wrestle with how hard it is for us to willingly move down in order to serve others, we can't even comprehend the miracle of Christmas. See, we don't realize the magnitude of what God was willing to do for us until we consider doing just an ounce of downward mobility for the sake of others. Can you see that? Do you see how much love and sacrifice it would take for us to do that? Jesus used his power and resources not to promote himself, but to promote us. He paid it forward for us, willingly going down all the way to the grave that lifts us up. Why would he do that? The creator of the universe, leaving the splendor of heaven to be born as a helpless baby. See, the scriptures tell us he was motivated by his love for you and for me. 
God gave the greatest gift of love imaginable. He became small that we might become great. He became like us that we might be like him. He died that we might live. See, God wants to make you great, truly great. He wants you to become great. And he wants that greatness to last for all eternity. But eternal greatness comes with willingness. You must willingly empty yourself of building your kingdom first in order to willingly build God's kingdom first. Jesus changed the world through local churches of people willing to follow him and willing to keep moving forward, serving him and serving others. Think about that. The God of creation willing to leave perfection and glory and honor to descend and unite with humanity, willingly descending into our poverty and scandal and helplessness. His life charted the path to greatness by submitting his will as a human to doing God's will. The first thing he did was to be baptized because it was God's will. And it's, a, it's an interesting moment because Jesus is the only person on the planet that didn't need to get baptized. He didn't need to repent and turn his life back to God. He didn't need to be washed clean of his sins. In fact, he did it, it says, as an example for others. A few years ago, a little boy in our church heard that we say, no perfect people allowed, and he was very disconcerted by that. So he went to his mom and said, but mom, we've got to let Jesus come because Jesus is perfect. And I was able to explain to him after the mom brought this up, oh yeah, he's why we even meet. Now there is one guy in the eight years I've been here that came up and said, I don't like this no perfect people allowed thing because I am perfect. And he meant it. Uh, he, he doesn't come here anymore for some reason. But, <laughs> but we say no perfect people allowed because we believe that when we are open and authentic with where we're at, that's the place we need to be in order to make progress. See, in the story of Jesus, he was baptized as an example for all of us. And then it says that after his baptism, he went out into the desert, fasting for 40 days. And it was in the desert that he was tempted by darkness, the enemy, saying, if you're God's son, meet your needs now. Turn these stones to bread to prove yourself. And Jesus responds in Matthew 4, no, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Three times Jesus is tempted. Three times he quotes scripture as what he will do, willing to do what God's word says. Every day, Jesus was looking only to do God's will, John 5. Jesus explained, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. See, Jesus lived in daily communion with God the Father, seeking to willingly do God's will. He modeled for us how humanity is meant to live. John 5, I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. And he lived this way to the very end, in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing execution. It was not his will as a human to suffer and die. He prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup of suffering be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, willingness is what characterized Jesus' life from birth to death. It's why he never sinned. He never put his human will above God's will. That's why he's the greatest for eternity. There's no greater name. And that's how he changed the world. 
by launching a kingdom of love called his church, characterized by willingness. So how willing are you? How willing am I? What if we were to live each day with a willingness to respond to those promptings? That still small voice calling us to do good, to be kind, to give generously, to be his hands and feet. See, the church is always Jesus' plan to change the world. But here's a big problem. It's remarkable. Maybe one of the greatest miracles in history is that the church still exists because of all of the evil things the church has done. John Ortberg, in a fantastic book called Who Is This Man, writes, the Inquisition and witch hunts and crusades and defense of slavery and imperialism and resistance to science and wars of religion come and go and return. Judgmentalism and intolerance and bigotry infect continents and centuries. Scandals of money and sex among church leaders never seem to cease. And Jesus' followers cause him far more harm than his enemies do. See, the challenge is there are people who claim the name Christian, but they're more committed to churchianity than they are to the one who started this mission, Jesus himself. And even when we're honest, if we're not fully devoted and following and willing, then we do not represent him well. I mean, how many of us in this room struggle to even come to this place because of people who called themselves Christians that were in our life? that were judgmental and hypocritical. See, the beauty of the church is that he loves us and he changes us and empowers us. The the scriptures not only use this image that, that followers of Jesus are the body of Christ, his hands and feet in the world, it also uses this image of being the bride of Christ. And sometimes we're an ugly bride. And yet his love for us is still real, offering us the opportunity to start again, to be willing to let him transform us, that we might be agents of transformation in the world around us. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12. Written to those who have said yes to Jesus, it says, all of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. That's why as a church, we do what Jesus did. We come together on Sundays, much like Jesus would gather together people at the Sermon on the Mount. He taught on a mountainside so that those not welcome at the synagogue could come and hear. In fact, in that crowd were disciples, followers of Jesus, plus tax collectors and prostitutes, people that were not welcome in the synagogue. We are People in different places, some of us following Jesus with full devotion and have for years, and others of us new to this, and others of us still trying to figure things out. And if Sundays are like the Sermon on the Mount, then our networks are like the 70. See, Jesus sent out 70 of his followers to meet the physical and emotional and relational needs of the people and the spiritual needs, serving others with others. And like Jesus, we have life groups that are made up of the 12 studying the scriptures together, being intentional about spiritual growth. And as we start networks that have life groups, then we start new campuses. And I want us to catch a glimpse of one of the networks that's doing some really neat things and notice how life by life transformation happens. Let's watch the Dripping Springs Network.
To me, Dripping Springs at its core is community. It's a nice little hill country town. And we love the, the fact that it's a very family-oriented community. I, I can't imagine living anywhere else. It's amazing. We love it out here. You know, Tracy and I, we really feel like God called us here years ago and that he had uh, a purpose for us here. I mean, there's a lot of families out here, but they're real families with real problems and real hurts and real needs. That was one of the main things that interested us with, uh, with Gateway was the no perfect people allowed uh, culture. It was a place where we felt like we could invite anybody, but we knew that we had to bring, somehow find a way to bring some of uh, gateway out to Dripping Springs and let the people out here in Dripping Springs experience um, how God uniquely moves through Gateway. I'll never forget our first life group out here in Dripping Springs. It started as a dream and a hope and a vision. And we started we started our first meetings right in our right in our living room. And they kept inviting us over to their house. They kept inviting us for dinner. They kept inviting us um, to do like a Bible study with them and. One day I said, you know what, what the heck, we'll give it a shot. We showed up at their house and the rest is all history. Our hope is really to bring life and freedom to, to, to the people in Dripping Springs. We, we all are dealing with brokenness and hurt and, and baggage from our lives and, and we feel like we have to hold it all together and we have to present this image of, of having it together. And I know that there are people that are desperate for God. And when we, I will never forget, sat in a Bible study with a homeless guy, a gay couple, an ex-con, I just cried. I said, I'm home. This is a room that Jesus would sit in. And that carried over into us going like gangbusters and starting a life group. And we met in a home with the neatest couples. And we met in the bar, we met in the coffee shop, then in the city hall, and we were going and rolling. We were at a place called Mazama's, and it's a coffee shop, and, we, and there was like a little like church session. A little Caden. I noticed him very quickly because he had just an earnest heart to learn. They both instantly became friends. Norman, he he was my biggest impact. The little people that 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 need God, just the same as I do, they have real problems, just like I do. He's like really passionate about everyone. Like he loves them no matter what happens, no matter what they do. And that's what I love about him. God God very quickly rushes into a willing heart. And so if, when you have a willingness to do something, even if you feel like it's bigger than yourself, God is faithful to rush in, uh, when, especially when it lines up with what His heart is. It's beautiful to see the network growing, the life groups expanding and multiplying, and, and God's reach to people's hearts expanding. We have uh, three life groups now. Uh, that are meeting in the Dripping Springs area. There's a men's life group, uh, there's a women's life group, and a couple's life group. I feel like I've got women and men that I can live life with, and I've never had that. There, like, there's a bunch of people I can rely on there. Like, everyone there, like, I can trust. Gateway and, and Dripping Springs both have impacted us in more ways than I can even imagine. My hope is that we'll have a Gateway and Dripping Springs where we can invite other unchurched people. It's just mind-blowing to me to think that just us, just little old us, 
um, and our group of people could be a part of something bigger. Isn't that great? Yeah. I'll never forget when I met Norman and Tracy here at Gateway South and heard of their desire to reach out to their friends in Dripping Springs, and it's been so amazing just to see a life group turn into multiple life groups and to see other families and singles and couples connecting and reaching out to their neighbors. And along the way, uh, Norman, with his son, went to camp, our winter camp, and Caden was there. And as part of that experience, he really uh, decided to follow Jesus. He comes back from winter camp, tells his mom, and we baptized his mom and Caden in the lobby last year. By the way, winter camp's registration last day is today. So if you want your kid to go, make sure you sign up for that. I want to just remind us that we will never imagine all that God wants to do through us until we're willing. And when we're willing, it's amazing where he'll take us. In fact, we have high hopes. We want to start a campus in Buda Kyle and in Pflugerville next year and eventually in Dripping Springs. And, and that happens by starting networks. And we want to invite you to be willing to serve others with others, to be willing to, to resource what God wants to do in this place and across our city and beyond. Starting networks filled with business leaders and entrepreneurs, a, a network for our deaf community, a network made up of people serving those without shelter. On and on, there are ways for you to jump in and serve alongside of us, creating community. And it could be that in this new year, God is asking you to be willing as the end of this year comes and we look towards the new year to serve like never before, to invest in your spiritual growth like never before, and to invest financially even in this community like never before. When you came in, you should have received a little brochure and I want to encourage you to take some time this week to even read through it. It's, we share a beautiful story of how life by life transformation happens. And in there is a, an actual exercise about becoming willing. Work through that exercise and just pray with an open heart. Perhaps God will prompt you to, to start giving to what we're doing together. If you're new to Gateway and not even sure about God, this, this moment is not... For you, Not to exclude you, but not to pressure you either. But for those of us who follow Jesus, for some of us, it's learning to give and even maybe stretching to give. Uh, maybe even some of us give the first 10% of our income to what God wants to do through this local church. And then on top of that, maybe giving a, a one-time gift at the end of the year above and beyond. Maybe it's been an incredible year. Maybe you just sense a desire to sacrifice and then for all of us to consider a 1% challenge, what if not only giving to what we do here at Gateway South, we took 1% of our income and gave it towards these new campuses? I wanna encourage you to go to gatewaychurch.com slash challenge, and you can read more about what we hope to do together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you came to rescue us, and you offer that rescue every day that we might become willing every day to step out in faith, to serve, to love, to give. God, would you just allow us to represent you well in this part of the world? 
bringing peace and love and joy. And in this Christmas season, would you open the hearts and minds of our neighbors and coworkers and family and friends that they might come on a Sunday or Christmas Eve, that they would experience what we've found in you and in this community. In Jesus' name we pray.